Welcome back to the podcast. In our last episode, we learned about the small settlements that came together to create the larger New Haven colony. And as I hinted in that episode, part of the reason why these settlements decided to give up a little bit of their autonomy to make a larger colony was that they wanted to participate in what will become known as the United Colonies of New England, otherwise known as the New England Confederation. And that's what this episode is about. And so why did the Puritan colonies, who previously very much enjoyed running their own affairs, decide in 1643 to create this confederation with one another? Well, let's figure that out right now. First of all, you might be saying to yourself, well, Plymouth, I know you brought up Plymouth in the last episode as one of the members of the United Colonies of New England, but Plymouth isn't a Puritan colony. It's a separatist colony. What happened? Yes, Plymouth was founded by a group of separatists or brownists, you could call them, whereas New Haven, Connecticut and Massachusetts were founded by Puritans. Both factions existed on the same religious wing, I guess you could call it. The one big difference between the Puritans and the separatists is the Puritans believed they could purify the Church of England to make it into this wonderful English Calvinist organization of local congregations choosing their own clergy and being in communion with one another. Whereas the separatists believed that the Church of England was far too gone to be saved and that same structure could be rebuilt anew outside of the Anglican Church. Now, from the side of the Plymouth Colony, I'm going to quote Dr. Stephen Tompkins, who's a religious historian. Needing the protection and friendship of Massachusetts, its separatism became subdued. Now, Plymouth never really abandoned their separatist beliefs, but they stopped being so vocal about it. And they didn't need to be vocal about it because they were so far removed from any authority of the Anglican Church. Now, let's look at things from the Puritan angle, as found in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Haven. I'm going to quote here the historian Thomas Jefferson Wurtenbacher. Congregationalism, which was transplanted in New England, had assumed its final form. It was based upon the assumption that each congregation in itself was a church, receiving its authority not from any national or international body, but direct from God. And though it recognized the Church of England, it reduced it to a loose confederation of congregations. And so whereas the separatists had protested the Anglican Church and its structure with their words... The Puritans of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Haven, they protested the Anglican Church with their feet and their boats, and they literally left the domain of the Anglican Church. Of course, these New England colonies being within the realm of England, but there being no Anglican structure over it, despite the best efforts of Sir Ferdinando Gorgias in his failed Council for New England. To quote the historian Nathaniel Philbrick, the Puritans staunchly denied it. But their immigration to America had turned them, like the pilgrims before them, into separatists. And therein lies the dirty little secret. Which might not be so secret after all. The Puritans back in England were no longer trying to fix the Anglican Church. They wanted to rewrite it and rebuild it from the ground up. And we'll circle back to that in a minute. And just like the grassroots building of the New Haven colony, the churches in Plymouth came into communion with one another. The churches in Massachusetts came into communion with one another. And then cross-colony, they came into communion with one another. Suddenly, the Puritan and the Separatist churches are part of the same group of equals. And even the definition of that term, Puritan, becomes obscured by the 1630s. It doesn't refer to just the strict movement to purify the Anglican Church anymore. An English-speaking Calvinist who believes in congregationalism, they could be called a Puritan. 
And so we could see the forces of internal unity among the Puritan colonies building. Now, what's going on in merry old England that would necessitate a confederation of colonies in the New World? In the year 1629, King Charles begins a long period of time without calling for a parliament. Legally unable to raise taxes without calling for a parliament, he makes a lot of his income on duties and licensing and giving out monopolies, which, as you can imagine, wreaked havoc on the English economy, angering just about everyone, including the parliamentarians who were upset that they seemingly had no voice anymore in the government. The parliamentarians came to gain the support of the Puritans in England, who really, since the time of Charles's father, James I, had started to become associated with the anti-royalist faction. Now, this is before the formal United Kingdom, but King Charles, being the son of James I, is also the King of Scotland, a place he has little understanding of and has neglected greatly and mistreated. The Scots rise up in rebellion against the king. King Charles raises a force to go and put them down, and he loses. He's forced to retreat back to England. All of northern England is overrun by the Scots, and Charles is forced to reconvene Parliament to raise taxes to fix this whole mess. But by activating Parliament, he created another enemy. As time went by, King Charles became so upset with Parliament, he would actually storm in there with a couple troops and try to arrest some prominent parliamentarians. Parliament being forewarned did not take this lying down. And I don't mean for this whole podcast episode to be about English history. So yada, 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 we have the English Civil War. And so externally, in relation to the Puritan colonies, by 1642 into 1643, there is no direction from the homeland. Eaton and Winthrop and Bradford, they can't look to the king for authority. They can't look to parliament until one side actually wins this thing. And as you can imagine, communication has dropped off. Trade has dwindled. And so these four colonies look to each other for stability, having at least a recent history of cooperation. The first of which would probably be Massachusetts and Plymouth, of course. When the Massachusetts Bay Colony showed up in far greater numbers than Plymouth, initially the Plymouth settlers were concerned. They were worried. But they quickly found out that their industry, their economy, had a boom from suddenly having a new market to sell to. Plymouth experienced a boom in the sale of cattle to the hungry people of Boston. And each colony had taken its turn removing Thomas Morton from his Marymount Colony. Connecticut was very much an offshoot of Massachusetts, and they would be even more naturally aligned to one another, where you would see Connecticut, Massachusetts, Plymouth, and the long-gone Saybrook colony participate on some level with their native allies in destroying the Pequot tribe as it was known at the time, the Pequot Nation. And New Haven, our newest colony, not participating in the Pequot War because it didn't really exist yet, was founded by Davenport and Eaton, both investors in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and upon its foundation took a number of Massachusetts settlers with them. And so New Haven, by composition, would fit in with the other three. And so we discussed the problems in England. We, t- we discussed their growing internal unity. Now, what is going on in the New World that they feel so compelled to form a confederation with one another? Well, to the West, the new Netherland colony was stirring up quite a bit of trouble. Their incompetent governor, Willem Kieft, insisted on extracting tributes from their supposed native allies on the river, the river natives or the river Indians, as they called them, members of the Lene Lenape and associated groups. By 1643, this led to outright war. This war would become known as Keep's War quite deservingly. The epicenter of this would now be in what is downstate New York and parts of New Jersey. 
which is not that far from these Puritan colonies. Now, what they feared was a general Native American uprising. As we saw with the death of Anne Hutchinson, the natives did not always distinguish between English or Dutch. And the settlers at Plymouth remember specifically hearing the news of the 1622 attack of the Powhatan on Jamestown and her satellites. Fear of the natives would be a motivator for this confederation, but also fear of other English people. Now, to the north, we have the fledgling colony of Maine, which will be split and also have the colony of Ligonia. And then to the south, you have the colony of Rhode Island, coming together much like New Haven from little independent settlements. In each colony, you have undesirables, English people who are not of the Puritan variety. Down in Rhode Island, often referred to as the sewer of New England, you have groups of people that the Puritans consider kooks, insane people, crazies, anarchists, like Samuel Gorton and his group, the Gortonists, and Hutchinson and the Antinomians before she moved to New Netherland. You'd have Roger Williams, who would jump a couple religious sects before just deciding that the true Church of Christ was dead until his return. And with this came a lot of territorial dispute between the Rhode Island settlers and their allies, the Narragansett, and the Puritan colonies. Needless to say, Rhode Island will not be invited to join the New England Confederation, the United Colonies of New England. And now going north to Maine, you have a colony full of fur trappers and fishermen and, and hardy, salt-of-the-earth types not particularly religious or heady in their thoughts, the men known for their partying ways, and the few women in the colony known to be women of ill repute. As such, in their pursuit of purity, Maine will not be invited to join the United Colonies, especially as Massachusetts would increasingly seek to absorb Maine. At the end of the day, it's probably more accurate if we were to call it the United Colonies of Puritan New England. And on this matter of Massachusetts trying to really absorb everything in all directions around it, the other three Puritan colonies wanted to make a mutual defense league with Massachusetts because they were so large in population by comparison. And a mutual defense league would come with a promise that Massachusetts would honor their borders and not try to absorb the other Puritan colonies. And so I've given you 12-13 minutes of reasons why this New England Confederation comes to be. So let's put ourselves back in 1643 and crack open the Constitution of the United Colonies of New England and see what's in it. What stands out immediately is the guarantee that each colony, New Haven, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Plymouth, will guarantee the territorial integrity of one another and recognize the legitimacy of each municipality, each political entity. This is important because each one was lacking something in the English legal system that would make it legitimate. Massachusetts, probably having the strongest case to support its existence, had its charter rescinded several years before. Plymouth only received permission to settle the land, not govern over the land, from a council that no longer exists. Connecticut had a land grant that it was gifted from the Saybrook colony that it absorbed, that was sold to a group of patentees, the Saybrook patentees, by the Earl of Warwick, that was acquired again from that council that, again, no longer exists. And then poor New Haven only had the record of purchase and the friendship of the natives, and no legitimacy in English eyes at all. But by recognizing each other, they would provide some legitimacy in this time of a civil war. 
Countries do this today. Nations recognizing each other as part of becoming a legitimate nation. It sounds redundant or a practice in circular logic, but there it is. The United Colonies Constitution mentions that the confederation of the Puritan colonies was caused by local native wars, which we've already talked about, and native aggression. Also, it brought up a lack of aid from England, mentioning that England has been hindered by their own affairs, which is a nice way of saying everyone's murdering each other. It makes a clear point that all direction and authority that they had previously came from England, thus demonstrating their submissiveness to England proper, and yet defending the creation of their own confederation on the basis that the Civil War had left them without any direction. Now, historians have dug through this constitution and the history of the United Colonies to really find the inspiration and the sources behind its structure and implementation. The best one of the bunch is Harry Ward. He's probably the the preeminent historian on the United Colonies. He's long since passed. Now, as I alluded to before, just as the churches pretty much founded the municipal governments, they also came into communion with one another. And then municipalities came into communion with one another. And then colonies were created, like New Haven in our last episode. And so following our grassroots building chain, now the colonies would come to have a communion or covenant with one another in what we would call a confederation today. And so that is one source of the United Colonies, a groundswell of cooperation rooted in congregationalism. Other historians have found bits and pieces of the New England Confederation's constitution that resemble portions of the Swiss Confederation, which is already in existence, and also the government of the Netherlands, which at the time was a confederation, and many Puritan leaders had been in and out of the Netherlands, even the early separatists 20, 30 years before. And so between their own church cooperation and then European confederations, we have the structure of the United Colonies. The Constitution addresses the exclusion of other English colonies right away. It begins, Whereas we all came into these part of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. In addition to honoring each other's territorial integrity, they also agree to honor the ruling of every colony's general court. A conviction in one would mean a conviction in the other. Or a conviction in one, and the convicted runs away to another colony, they would be extradited back to their original colony. And over the top of every colony would be the Confederation Council, which would consist of eight commissioners, two from every colony. In order to pass any legislation, six out of the eight commissioners would need to approve it. What this could mean in practice is that one out of the four colonies being outnumbered would have to deal with whatever law they passed, and there is no stipulation for a veto by individual colonies in the Constitution. This will become problematic in the future. Each commissioner that a colony sent to the New England Confederation would have to be verified, or in other words, approved by the pre-existing or pre-appointed commissioners. This again very much models the communion of churches and the process of being accepted as an equal Now, over the general court, there would be one president who would be a presiding officer, much like the Speaker of the House or the vice president in the Senate, not an executive position like the president of the United States. That power would remain with each individual colony. We had the very same system under the Articles of Confederation. Now, this president wouldn't be greater than any of the other commissioners. They were just in charge of conducting the meetings, making sure everything flowed appropriately 
with good use of time, but in proper order. All of these commissioners would be given one-year terms and then again would have to be appointed from their individual general courts. And specifically, each one had to be part of the church fellowship. They had to be members of the churches in communion with one another. Again, we see that earthly governmental power in the Puritan colonies is derived from the church. Their constitution had no mechanism for amending it, although they all agreed that if there was something in there that all four colonies didn't like, they could agree to ignore it. And they all agreed that the Confederation would meet the first Thursday in September unless additional matters warranted meetings, such as an outbreak of war. In this early period, the commissioners came from the highest of the high in each individual colony. The commissioners were often the governors of their respective colonies, such as Eaton in New Haven. But this will change in time. And in addition to meeting in September, they agreed on a circuit of locations for the meeting of the Confederation. And so it would go in this order. Boston, one year. Boston, the next year. Then Hartford, New Haven, and Plymouth. Then back to Boston again. Now, why Boston for two years? Well, the entire population of the United Colonies of New England, according to Harry Ward anyway, uh, was around about 24,000 people. 15,000 of them were in Massachusetts alone. Having most of the population, they would be hosting these meetings for two years instead of one year, which brings up a problem again. If the two commissioners from New Haven, the two commissioners from Connecticut, and the two commissioners from Plymouth all agree on something, they can overrule a dissenting view from the two commissioners from Massachusetts, meaning the 9,000 or so in population in those three colonies could force legislation over the 15,000 in Massachusetts. Again, a little foreshadowing. Let's put that on the back burner. The Constitution specifies that no two member colonies can merge without permission from the other two. So while respecting each other's territorial boundaries, they also insisted on this more local political separation. There are also more mundane things established in the Constitution and in the first few years of the running of the Confederacy. They banned the sale of guns to natives, which had been an important issue in Massachusetts and Plymouth especially for a very long time. But they also did things to maintain the economy and the environment of New England. They banned mackerel fishing before spawning season in order to maintain supply. And for commerce between colonies, they established some weights and measures, such as indicating that there were eight gallons to a bushel. Can you imagine coming from Plymouth to buy rope in Massachusetts and you both have a slightly different definition of what a foot is or a yard? Their constitution also has a, a chunk on war. Often the United Colonies is cited as an example of mutual defense, but the constitution does reference specific cases of offensive war. The Puritans clearly intended to expand outward. It indicated that each colony had to maintain a militia. Men aged 16 to 60, if they were of able body, would have to participate. They would meet four times a year to drill. And again, grassroots from the bottom up, they would also elect their own leaders to be their military captains. Now, this wasn't a very hard thing to enforce as each colony had already been doing this. They already had a militia following these specifications, but it doesn't hurt to enshrine it in the document of this larger confederation over the top of the colonies. And that confederate council would have to approve of a declaration of war collectively because they reasoned that a war 
on one colony would be a war on all of the colonies. They would all be affected to some degree. Examples of this are very clear. The Pequot War, where Saybrook, the small colony of Saybrook trying to stay out of the war, uh, were attacked anyway because of their association with the English from Plymouth and especially Massachusetts. And so any individual colony that wanted to declare war would have to receive the approval of the larger council. And in a time of war, the number of men you would have to contribute would be proportional to your total population, which going back to Massachusetts meant they would have to sacrifice more. They would have to bring more men to the battlefront. They would have to provide more supplies. Where this gets tricky, and will come up at the end of our episode anyway, is that an offensive war, even if it's approved by the Confederate Council, still needs to be approved by the general court of each individual colony. This would enshrine something very similar to what John C. Calhoun, many, 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 many years later, would call state nullification, and provided the Puritan colonies with very specific corners of the Constitution that they could ignore if their colony was unified in opposition to it. I wonder if you could see where this is going now. And so the Confederate Council had each general court conduct their own census of their colony in order to determine how many able-bodied men were there between the ages of 16 and 16. This would set the measure for future wars. Also of note here, men who were not church members, of which there were many, were also required to participate in the militia to potentially fight wars they had no suffrage in determining. And if a war was to break out, the Confederate Constitution outlines that the directives and the maneuvers of the war would be dictated by a Confederate-appointed commander-in-chief who would oversee the troops from all four colonies. In practice, though, as we move forward in our timeline, local militia captains empowered by colonial general courts would retain most of the directive power. But that's the Constitution as it was outlined and approved the 19th of May in 1643. And unexpectedly, one of the very first things the United Colonies would have to rule upon was an issue between two Native Americans. Now, I've told this story twice this season already, and it's because I like the story. And it ends terribly, so I'm going to tell it again. The great Uncas of the Mohegans was an ally to the English during the Pequot War, and he absorbed many of the Pequot, making himself more powerful in the process. Uncas continued to be an ally to the English, which caused a lot of jealousy among other sachems in the area, including many of the Narragansett nation. This included a Narragansett chief named Myantonomi, who is the nephew of Canonicus. The two of them are responsible for much of the land sales in what would now be Rhode Island. On several occasions, Myantonomi is known to have tried to orchestrate the death of Uncas. But in the end, Uncas got the better of him and captured him, rather than reap his revenge right there on the spot, because the death of the sachem Myantonomi would cause potential conflict, as Native Americans would do in such a case, they brought the captive for judgment in front of their allies. Because much like the United Colonies within themselves, a conflict in one colony will spread to the other colonies. While a conflict among one Native American nation could very easily spread to their allied Native American nations. And so Uncas, in front of the Council of the Confederation, asked for permission to kill Myantonomi. Not expecting this to be the kind of business they would undertake, they nonetheless agreed that they would not object to the killing of Myantonomi as long as it wasn't within the territory of the United Colonies, and thus inviting the wrath of the Narragansett. And so Uncas took Myantonomi outside of Massachusetts territory, 
and split his head in half with an axe, and then dug a piece of meat out of Mayantanomi's chest and ate it. And he said it was the sweetest meat he had ever eaten. And that's all before really turning over the first page of business of the United Colonies. And how this benefited the Puritans is it would undermine the land sales of Rhode Island. Again, a colony not welcomed into the United Colonies of New England. And Massachusetts would begin pressing into Rhode Island, specifically denying the validity of a land grant sold to Samuel Gorton by Mayantanomi and a few other sachems. But the first real test on the structure of this confederacy would come from the north, actually from the French in Acadia. At this time, there's what's going on right now is the Acadian Civil War, which we covered in the last season of this podcast. The one side of the Civil War was led by a man named Latour, who was a on-again, off-again Protestant. Using himself and his charming wife, he managed to raise a fair amount of support within the Massachusetts Bay Colony to support his faction in the Civil War to the north in Acadia. This is all occurring before, during, and after the formation of the Confederacy. So maybe because of the timing or the confusion, Winthrop didn't receive any permission from the United Colonies to support what could be construed as an offensive war, and not just against a small Native American nation, but a colonial colony that is owned by the Empire of France, and merely experiencing their own internal troubles, for which Winthrop and the Massachusetts Bay Colony decided to involve itself and in fact involved themselves in the losing faction. And so by the next year, 1644, Massachusetts, and especially the trading posts that they had up the coast of what is now New Hampshire and Maine, were now the target of privateer attacks. These privateers being licensed out of Acadia by the winning faction. Governor Winthrop was immediately accused of breaking the covenant between the colonies that made the New England Confederation. And in the election of that year, he lost the governorship. And with that, his commissioner's post. These events seem to confirm the legitimacy of the United Colonies as a supercolonial government. Further, the United Colonies ended this affair by approving and giving permission to Massachusetts to enter into a peace treaty with Acadia. So within a year of formalizing their constitution, they demonstrated that the United Colonies of New England wouldn't just be a meeting place of colonial representatives. Rather, it could function as a centralized government, which moves us into their next issue of business. While the Confederacy did address Acadia, Acadia dealt with Massachusetts individually. But to the west in New Netherland, Willem Kieft, the disastrous governor of New Netherland, undertaking a war that will bear his name to history, might be, from my own research, I'm going to claim this one, the first foreign or outside power to acknowledge the United Colonies. As in 1644, he writes not to Massachusetts, not to Connecticut, but to the United Colonies of New England, requesting help to fight the natives he has so riled up, and relying on the fear that, again, that a localized native war might grow into a regional uprising of all native peoples against Europeans. Much like the case with Uncas, this was an unexpected request. And the United Colonies, very much thinking about their own safety at this early date, do provide aid in some forms that wouldn't be completely obvious to their native neighbors. One thing they did specifically is that they authorized John Underhill to go to New Netherland and for Keith to employ him in putting down the rebellion. Now, Underhill had been one of the captains responsible for the Fort Mystic massacre during the Pequot War. And if my memory serves me right from season one of this podcast, many of the 
worst war crimes committed during Keese War were undertaken by Underhill, who you'll find in the Dutch records as Vonderhill, the United Colonies gifting to New Netherland a man that modern historians would call genocidal. And again, empowered by the United Colonies, Massachusetts invaded Samuel Gorton's settlement at Shawlment. Gorton would end up back in England, where he would complain, and these are his words, that these Puritan colonies were not only against some of the natives and subjects, but against the authority also of the Kingdom of England, which in many ways was completely true. But the Kingdom of England was in trouble as the Civil War turned towards the parliamentary forces. And one could complain for as much as you want about conditions in New England to the king or to the royalists. They had little power over old England, let alone New England. Nevertheless, Gordon had the Narragansett submit their allegiance to the king in an attempt to protect the Narragansett from invasion from the United Colonies, which they wouldn't undertake at this time. But Uncas of the Pequot would war with them for the next year or so, and the English would provide material support to him. And once Uncas had worn down the Narragansett, they had a peace between the two sides, partially brokered by commissioners of the New England Confederation, was reached. And in return for getting Uncas off their back, the United Colonies extracted a tribute from the Narragansett from 1645 on. And about the same time, both Sir Ferdinando Gorgias and his colony of Maine and different individuals from the Rhode Island or Providence colonies request and are denied membership into the Confederation on the basis that they're not in the church way. This all happens in the first two years or so of the creation of the United Colonies of New England. A peace brokered with Acadia, aid given to New Netherland, Uncas is given aid several times. Rhode Island is territorially eaten away at, the Narragansett are made to submit, and then they became so bold as to deny Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, the former governor of New England, the inclusion of his colony of Maine into the United Colonies. If this confederation continued on this trajectory, today we wouldn't have a New England consisting of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island there would be a singular New England state. But there isn't, so you know things are going to start to tilt at some point. In 1646, Chief Sesquisson of the Narragansett, who we haven't met yet in our podcast, wanted to drive a wedge between the English and the Mohegans, their paramount chief, of course, being Uncas. Chief Sesquisson's plan was to hire an assassin to murder one of the commissioners of the United Colonies of New England and then to create a stage situation wherein the assassin appeared to be a Pequot under the command of Uncas. But how we know about this, and instead what happened, the would-be assassin told colonial authorities in Connecticut about the plan. Because if it were successful, it'd be a recipe for a very deadly war for all sides considered. The historian Harry Ward said of this event, The conspiracy sent cold shivers down the spines of the saints. The commissioners of the Confederacy put out a message to Chief Sesquisson that he was to appear in front of the United Colonies commissioners. He doesn't show. Then they put out an arrest warrant for Chief Sesquisson. Trusty and capable Chief Uncas of the Mohegan was more than happy to carry through with this arrest warrant and found the chief himself, bringing Sesquisson in front of the Confederation much as he brought his own would-be assassin, my antinomy, 
Uncas hoping that he would again be allowed to kill this rival chief. Instead, what happened? The United Colonies, keeping a cooler head, realized that killing this second chief would push the Narragansett into war. And instead, they banished him from the New England region until 1650. A wise move, a middle path. Back in merry old England, Parliament establishes the Committee on Foreign Plantations, trying to regain some contact with her foreign colonies. And at the head of this committee, they put the Earl of Warwick. This is the man who took control of the earlier Council for New England and opened the door for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So now they had a powerful ally back home where the Civil War was winding down in favor of Parliament, allied with the Puritans. Everything seems to be going good. Let's get to our first issue, our first turning point. Toward the tail end of the 1640s, Traders from Massachusetts complained that they had to pay toll at Fort Saybrook, now part of the Connecticut colony and at the mouth of the Connecticut River. These complaints made it all the way up to the Massachusetts commissioners to the United Colonies, who disputed the legitimacy of collecting a toll and argued that Saybrook was not even legally part of Connecticut, it having previously been its own colony with its own patent and that paperwork making no mention of the Connecticut colony further upriver. Now, right here, after the Winthrop episode, we see the next constitutional challenge. Again, part of their founding document is that each member colony would recognize the territorial integrity of one another. Massachusetts clearly sought to undermine the integrity of Connecticut's land to avoid paying this toll. When it came time to vote on the legitimacy of this toll, the Massachusetts commissioners knew that the other colonies would be ruling against them, and so they did not appear. However, Connecticut, New Haven, and Plymouth voted unanimously to uphold this toll. This would be a six out of eight ruling, and thus by the Constitution, a legitimate piece of legislation. However, since Massachusetts never showed up, they argued that the meeting where this vote was held was not an official meeting of the United Colonies of New England, as they were missing one of those supposed United Colonies, Massachusetts. The issue remained unresolved for now and demonstrated a weakness in the United Colonies, a supposed superorganization over the top of the four Puritan colonies. But this tear in the fabric would not be large enough to throw out their whole confederacy. But remember, as I mentioned earlier, there was also no mechanism for mending that confederacy. Rounding out the 1640s, We'll move on to another good thing. The United Colonies of New England didn't create Harvard University, but it was very much responsible for much of its early funding and design. For example, in 1647, Harvard President Dunster asked the New England Confederation how Harvard should select students, how much salary he should take, what percentage of their funds should be spent on facilities, what percentage of their funds should be spent on books. The truth of the matter is, since the United Colonies was providing much of the funding for Harvard University, it had assumed a position much akin to today's Department of Education, where no, it's not in the Constitution, but because the department is handing out funds to states and school districts, they listen to it in order to get those funds. Similarly, Harvard would do the same with the United Colonies. The historian Harry Ward says that the New England Confederation functioned as a super board of trustees for Harvard University. The United Colonies urged each individual member colony to levy a small tax collected in even corn 
or other crops in order to support the students and teachers at the new Harvard University, and otherwise urged people to donate, outside of a tax, money and supplies. They had a vision of Harvard University. Well, they had several visions, but the first one was to be a school for all of the clergy of New England, not just the colony that Harvard is in. The other vision for Harvard would be to train converted natives to go back to their community and continue the conversion process. And to do that, teach them to read, teach them to read the Bible specifically. A man by the name of John Eliot would be the person most responsible for the conversion of natives and the creation under the New England Confederation of what they called in their record praying towns, where praying Indians would live. Massachusetts, Plymouth, and then the overarching New England Confederation would usher in a new era when converted natives would relocate to towns full of like-minded natives in an effort to pull their support towards the power of the English colony and away from their non-converting sachems. And for a while, this worked quite effectively. And now that native leadership would be educated at the Indian College at Harvard. In addition to gifts and taxes, the New England Confederation also approved of the selling of indentured children from England to New England, as long as a portion of the sale went as a fee to Harvard University. One of these indentured children will be John Scott, a man who will have an episode on concerning him becoming president of Long Island in the 1660s. Another goal of Harvard University, which came out of the antinomian crisis that we learned about in our Anne Hutchinson episode, was to promote a commonality among the clergy in New England. If the leading clergy in every colony would be educated at Harvard, there would be far more uniformity. The United Colonies saw this uniformity as strength. So more good news in 1648, the Plymouth Colony finally paid off all of its debt to its original financiers. But at the same time, the Narragansett had neglected to pay its debt and provided no tribute, which then gave the United Colonies the go-ahead to mortgage their lands. The United Colonies then created what was known as the Atherton Company, which would claim to rightly repossess these lands as the tribute went unpaid, and then speculate on the sale of that land a clear and legalistic attack on the Narragansett and the Rhode Island colony by the United Colonies of New England. Rhode Island fortunately fought the Atherton Company tooth and nail, and for the most part was able to keep the United Colonies out of Rhode Island or Narragansett country, at least for now. Back in England, Parliament approved the creation of the Gospel Company. It's called by a couple other names, but we're going to call it the Gospel Company, which would designate funds to help John Eliot and his associates with converting the natives. Parliament officially gave the United Colonies of New England commissioners the right to decide how to distribute these funds. Why this is important is it's a clear example of English Parliament recognizing the authority of the New England Confederation over the top of each of its member colonies and the Native Americans of New England. At the same time, Resolution was provided to the Fort Saybrook issue and the collection of tolls. Massachusetts, in the four or so years since this issue began, not only ignored the earlier ruling, which they again saw as illegitimate, they also threatened to collect tolls at their ports on any ships coming from Connecticut. Now, this act of retaliation could have undone the entire United Colonies, except in 1650, Fort Saybrook burns to the ground. Customs are no longer collected there. An act of God resolved the conflict, but not the underlying constitutional issue. However, in a show of unity and strength, 
In the same year, 1650, the four Puritan colonies, working collectively as the United Colonies, negotiated a land treaty with Peter Stuyvesant of New Netherland. This became known as the Treaty of Hartford. Now, the Dutch had long claimed the entire Connecticut River Valley. And in fact, New Netherland in its widest scope would be the Connecticut River, the Hudson River, and the Delaware River. And all the land betwixt. Whereas the English, of course, had an overlapping claim. And actual real English settlements on the Connecticut River stretching into what is now Long Island. And of course, approaching what is now New York City. The lines overlapped. The New England Confederation would send specifically their commissioners from Plymouth and Massachusetts, not the two colonies bordering New Netherland, Connecticut, and New Haven, to negotiate this treaty. And at least a mild sign of being non-partial or uh, a willingness to be fair, be represented by the colonies that have no skin in the game. The treaty they created still outlines, or in many places at least influences, the border between what is today New York State and various New England states. And in fact, this conference was such a success, both sides went away thinking they won. So, Governor Stuyvesant of New Netherland, he only really gave up places where the English already settled and the Dutch were already run off, or their native allies already run off. In other words, he only gave up on paper what was already lost. Meanwhile, the New England colonies received recognition from New Netherland, their main competitor for land, for areas formerly in dispute. I think many historians of this period would say this is the era of the, the most competent and level-headed commissioners on the New England Confederation. In the same year as the Hartford Treaty, New France actually reaches out to the United Colonies, suggesting an alliance and a holy war against the Iroquois Confederacy. Falling on deaf ears, the United Colonies just outright reject this, as the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee had very few run-ins with the New England colonies at this time. Things would change in the future. But at this moment, 1650, the Iroquois are helping to subdue the natives in lower New Netherland. They're going far to the west, out to the Great Lakes, and sometimes extracting a tribute from New England natives. But they're not invading Plymouth. Also, the Puritan commissioners of the United Colonies have a very low view of Catholicism which, of course, would be the primary version of Christianity you're going to find in New France. They didn't see uniting forces as a holy war, as they didn't consider the Catholic to be terribly holy. Think about it. They don't even consider other English Anglicans to be particularly holy or elect. And even those within their own community who were not church members, they were not holy. They were not elect. It would appear the Catholics were barking up the wrong tree. Moving into the year 1651, John Eliot organizes his first praying town, known as Natick. It was to provide a model and a positive example to the Puritans that natives could be converted and they could live near the English and conform to their ways. However, in truth, as much as some historians have pat the Puritans on the back for reaching out to these natives, most of the Puritans were always suspicious of these praying towns, or at least always found them inconvenient. The historian Wendy Warren says, even Christian Indians were still in the way. Nonetheless, John Eliot, who very much wanted to save their souls, but very earnestly saw the end of the fur trade and the future economic plight of the natives, made sure to teach them trades, sewing and knitting, reading and lumbering. 
He wanted to find a place for them in a future that he knew was coming, when the English would outnumber the natives. In foreshadowing American policies in the 19th century, he saw assimilation as the key to keeping these people alive and well. John Eliot also saw civilization, or to civilize the natives, as a way of preparing them for religion. In other words, you have to live like the English in order to have English religion. Notably, if you go back up to New France, which I just brought up, the Jesuits there believed that Jesus' message was universal. You could become a Christian or a Catholic specifically without having to become French in your lifestyle. You can guess which one's conversion efforts were more successful. John Eliot even tried to organize these praying towns in such a way that the Puritans would find acceptable and set up a government based on a mosaic system, a system that he derived from the laws of Moses, wherein there would be a ruler for every 10 people, every 50 people, and every 100 people. And here our story starts to turn. In 1652, after six years of his various efforts, John Eliot presents his first convert to a Puritan church for membership. And after all the money the United Colonies had poured into this project, the Puritan church members rejected the convert. At the end of the day, there was a growing sense in New England of a very real and natural divide between the English and the natives. And that would only continue through King Philip's War. Just more cracks in the system. And as we end this episode in the 1650s, speaking of war, with the opening shots of the First Anglo-Dutch War, the possibility of conflict between their colonial counterparts, New England and New Netherland, is on the table. Parliament gives the United Colonies the go-ahead to start seizing Dutch ships, and the commissioners of the United Colonies of New England mull over the idea of invading New Netherland. But one colony, surprise, surprise, Massachusetts, who would have to contribute most of the fighting force, stands alone in their opposition to such an invasion, even though the United Colonies commissioners voted six out of eight to conduct this war. Now, constitutionally, if something receives a six out of eight vote approval, it is passed. It is approved. And yet Massachusetts refuses the ruling of the United Colonies. This is a magnification of the unresolved issue at Fort Saybrook. The historian Harry Ward says that 1652 marks the end of this decade of optimism of the Confederation. And despite its promising start, from this point on, things are going to get rocky. But before we cover that, in our next episode, we're going back to the New Haven colony. If for no other reason than to keep you in suspense. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening to the Other States of America History Podcast. <laughs>